It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is CEO Ron Rocca. A natural at sales and marketing, Ron grew up within the healthcare and pharmaceutical sales sector and has numerous awards, accolades, and opportunities to participate in some of the most successful and unique campaigns. He started his career at Johnson & Johnson and learned the basic of healthcare sales there. He has his BS in marketing and personal management from Towson University, and he's the first generation son of Italian immigrants, is the proud father of two, and he lives in Carlsbad, California, with his high school sweetheart, who he's been happily married to for 31 years. Ron Rocca, welcome into the corner office. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Ah, it's great to have you here. Now, you know, we always like to kind of get started as we talked a little bit before the podcast to hear a little bit about the early years. Uh, I know you live in beautiful San Diego, California. I actually grew up in La Jolla, believe it or not. Great. So I know how lovely it is down there. But maybe you could tell us a little bit about, you know, where you grew up and uh, what your early family life was like. Absolutely. Well, it didn't, didn't start out in San Diego. Started out <laughs> <laughs> It's a great and place to end up in, though, isn't it? it? It's a good place to end up is exactly true. Uh, so I'm basically uh, the son of two immigrants. My parents ah. came over to Baltimore in their mid-20s. Oh, awesome. Uh, I was their, their first child born in the United States, which uh, is something that I, I think as we talk about leadership is something that's ingrained in me. Uh, I watched them struggle with the English language, learn, get jobs, and work their way through. Where'd they come from, Ron? Uh, Calabria, Italy. Oh my gosh, great. Terrific. And was their family already there? And uh, did they come to the East Coast, I would imagine, originally? Or? They came uh, They came right to the East Coast, came right to Baltimore. As, as mo- this is, These are World War II kids, so uh, it was important for them to get a fresh start, and uh, that's what they did here. And so you had, it sounds like you said you were the first one born. Do you have older brothers and sisters? I, I do have two sisters, uh, and uh, they both do very well. One's a, a nurse, and the other one is retired, and she was in marketing. So tell me about your parents. What did they do? I mean, as immigrants, uh, you know, you kind of hear the story of, you know, rags to riches and starting in, you know, kind of the bottom rung of the ladder, et cetera. Is that kind of their uh, their story or were they able to come in as professionals and get involved in their, their line of work prior to arriving here? Yeah, that, that's a good question because my dad was an electrical engineer in Italy, but this is post-World War II. They didn't, uh, they were both, uh, there's no other way to say it, very poor. Uh, when, when they came here, they lived in a row home in a place called Hollandtown, Baltimore, with uh, three other Italian families. And, and my, my distant memories is of that row home in, in, uh, in Baltimore. 
as I remember us all going there. It's funny because when you are poor, you sometimes don't realize it because we were rich sure. in other things. Yeah, yeah, still absolutely. had all the great Italian food, great the, the love of the family. It was still you grew up in an environment that was very caring and loving, and didn't really realize the the economics of the situation until you were much older. The Italians, of course, have a very strong faith tradition, the Catholic Church being based there, et cetera. Were your parents also of that ilk? Was that an important part of their community? Uh, my mom was. Uh, my dad would say he went to church before we woke up. So <laughs> that's, <laughs> why we, that's why we didn't see him there. Yeah, I understand. Terrific. What, what kind of influence did your parents have on you? Did they kind of grow right into then kind of blue-collar jobs to get started? Did they, were they entrepreneurial? Tell us a little bit about what you remember growing up and, and them working. Yeah. Um, so my dad was uh, definitely blue collar when he got here. He was still trying to learn English. Uh, I remember he was the, as far as the work ethic I have, it definitely came from him. Uh, he had two, three jobs. Sometimes he had, you know, he would be laid off from one and he'd work uh, and do pretty much take any job he could uh, to get the family going. My mother took care of the house and she was my uh, cheerleader. So you had the work ethic from my dad and, and my mom, the encouragement of you're in America, you can do anything you want. I mean, that was her whole thing is that this is, you have so many opportunities, don't let them pass by. So, um, did you have younger brothers and sisters that were born here as well? Or were you number three in the baby? Two sisters. Uh, so they, uh, they, they also, were older though, right? No, or, no. Yeah. Uh, well, my one sister was older. My one was younger. So one was born before and one was born after. Correct. And, uh, did, did you have other influencers, you know, were there uncles and aunts, were there other people in the you know, in the Italian, uh, Italian community that had an influence on you growing up? Absolutely. I mean, my, as, as my parents came over, then other relatives started coming over. So my uncle, who was my, my mom's, uh, uh, brother also came over. And what really, the reason I bring him up is because he was a big influence. He always wanted to, he said back in Italy, his family had a winery and he was going to do one here. And everybody said, you can't have a winery in Maryland. It doesn't work. <laughs> I'm happy to tell you, he has a very successful winery in Maryland. Uh, Good for the, him. Yeah, wow. That's great. So he, he really pursued his dream. Did he, did he like roll up the vines and bring him with him from Italy? I still, I still <laughs> remember, I, I still remember the bee stings on my hand. <laughs> planting this because he had the whole family working in that of field. Of course, of course. That's awesome. That's great. So did you, you worked on the farm, I guess, or worked in the vineyards? I don't think I had much of a choice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you probably weren't paid very much either, I presume. No, no, not at all. <laughs> but I'm very proud today because he's very successful with the oh, winery. Great. He wins all kind of contests and, and he did What's it. What's the name of the brand? Just out of curiosity. It, it's called Felicita, which Felicita. means the happiness. Yeah. yeah. Is it a white or a red or does he do both? He has blends of, of red and he has a white. The white's a, of Bedell, a very strong grape that can grow in the winter. What about school? Were you a good student, Ron? I uh, should have been a good student, but I wasn't. <laughs> uh, I was definitely had more energy than I did uh, for being able to sit at a desk. Uh, so I, 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 the way I would characterize it, I, I was a C-minus student with B-plus potential. There you go. There you go. What was some of that energy expended on? Was it sports, music, theater? What kind of things were you involved with? All sports. I mean, grow, growing up in Baltimore, they had uh, boxing clubs. You had the police club, the YMCA, and Golden Gloves. And, and I loved um, athletics. I loved boxing. So that's all I wanted to do was work out and box and, and so forth. And that's where most of my energy went. 
school, school didn't really become important to me until college. Then all of a sudden the light went off and that's when you start making, <laughs> that's when all of a sudden you're like, and, and the competitiveness comes out because now you want to be on the Dean's list every quarter. Now you want to be, you know, right, uh, and right. it was more the competition of, of having good grades. What about entrepreneurial things growing up? Um, other than getting bee stings on your hands and helping <laughs> your uncle, was there, you know, the paper route? Did you sell stuff at Christmas? You know, what, anything going on uh, during those earlier years? Uh, all the above had a paper route. Uh, I, you know, I, I painted houses, mowed lawns. But one of the things I, looking back, thinking of your question, is uh, I got a job at a food store as a, a bag boy. And, and I coordinated a bus trip to the Oriole game and uh, nice. I, I resold the tickets, resold it. Yeah. We did it like three or four times. And, uh, and it was a moneymaker for you. It didn't just pay your way. It was a moneymaker. And, and it really, it would taught me at a very young age was how to coordinate things and, and get things done. And you learned what margin meant. It learned, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not a call that that. <laughs> no. And you learn that your friends do not get free tickets. That's, what <laughs> That's right. That's right. They got to work for it just as hard as anybody else. Oh gosh. Well, what were some of those earlier jobs? Did you, you know, you said you worked as a bag boy, anything else during your high school or college years where, you know, you're working part-time? Oh yeah. Well, I, I worked full-time. I went to college full-time. I didn't have a choice. I, the, the money had to come from somewhere. So I, um, I paid 100% of my books, my tuition, my gas all through college. Probably the job that I think is most interesting because I went to Towson University and there's Johnny Unitas owned a restaurant there called the Golden Arm, a famous quarterback for Colts. Sure. No, I remember him well. Yeah. So I, I got a job as a bar back at uh, one of his restaurants called Baby Doe Factory and then would go to the Golden Arm. Uh, and the thing there that was interesting was he was the first, I guess, celebrity I ever met and an athlete. And I love athletes and how kind he was and how generous he was with this time. And, and the, he would take the barbacks in the back and you know, we would talk football. It was just a terrific experience from an icon. Yeah, I remember, uh, you know, he just had a way about him. Huh? Uh, you know, I, I grew up in the 60s and 70s. It sounds like you as you did. And um, you know, he just was a great personality. Uh, I remember this, his smiling face. It's so funny when you mentioned that. I just had an image of his picture and kind of had this really nice, you know, uh, smiling face. And, and, you know, he did a lot, gave a lot back to the community, it sounds like. Yeah, oh, very, awesome. very kind, very generous man. Was it a kind of a foregone conclusion that you'd go to college, Ron? It was. I, I didn't, you know, my parents did not have the money by any stretch of imagination. Uh, but it was, they wanted you to go. Yeah. Yeah. My, my mom said, you got to go. It's just somehow, some way, uh, you got to go. And, um, I'm I'm fortunate that the universities back then were nowhere near as expensive as they are today. As I send my kids, (laughs) tell me about it or as competitive or as competitive. I I, I went, I went to a state school. I went to a university of Oregon. I don't think I could get in there now. (laughs) Difficult it is. I guarantee you I couldn't get into my university today. (laughs) I don't even know what my SAT scores, but I'm sure I set the bar pretty low. (laughs) Well, how did you uh, decide what to study? Uh, we went with general business and finance, uh, financial. Kind of had an acumen for that. I really did. I just liked finance. I liked what it was about. And, uh, it was so clear in, in my life, which was very, uh, uh, you know, growing up the way I did, it was so absolute. There's an answer, you know, there's a, and there's an absent. And I really appreciated that out of finance. What was the first job you had out of college? First job out of college, I was very fortunate because uh, I worked for a huge conglomerate right out of college that that spent a lot of money on training and development, and that's uh, J&J. 
Oh, great company. Uh, yeah. yeah. Consumer Jansen products. was a division. It was just a terrific, terrific organization for a first timer. Uh, it was one of those where they came on campus and, and interviewed people. Uh, and I, I, a friend of mine said he's interviewing with a company called Jansen. I thought that was a bathing suit company. I didn't yeah, even know what it was. Yeah, that's actually who I thought of too. Yeah. So I, I drove them there because I had a beat up Fiat and uh, <laughs> I'm waiting in line with them. And the guy behind the desk said, hey, you know, who now, I now know is Rick Meidlinger. Uh, said, you want to take this test too? I did. Oh. Um, we're still friends, but I got the job. He didn't. Oh, isn't that <laughs> funny? Wow. Now, what was the Jansen brand then? Because I, I, I thought, gosh, I didn't know J and J owned swimwear. So, what, <laughs> what was it? A what was it? A consumer product? Was it? No, a, no. Uh, these were pharmaceuticals. It was mainly, mainly anest. It was the anesthetics. I mean, it was basically the fentanyl products that you hear have street value. They were used in anesthesia quite a bit. So I was at that, and they had a lot of uh, dermatology products like Nigerol. And, uh, and very, very good company. Was it sales or marketing? What did you go into first? Went right into sales. Uh, loved it. It was spectacular. I, I, uh, you know, I was just thrilled. I got, you know, $17,000 a year. I was just beside myself. <laughs> that was a good starting salary back oh, then. Oh my God. And then they told me I got a car. I mean, it's a, <laughs> on top so, of that. So now, yes. now saved yourself saying, another thousand. <laughs> and, and then they did the worst mistake. They told me they were these things called bonuses. And I went, oh, Really? That's so, fantastic. Uh, oh, it was spectacular. You How know, long I, did you stay there, Ron? I was at J&J for about 12 years. Oh, uh, great. Uh, Terrific. This, I was at Proctor for about nine. So, you know, I know that the first job out of college can be very formative. And, and J&J is just known very, very well for their for their training program. Did you stay on the pharmaceutical side the whole time? Did you move over to the... Stayed in pharmaceuticals. All, I was in sales, worked my way up, sales, uh, district manager, regional went in house, which I really learned a lot when I went in house up in New Jersey, uh, for a couple of years. And just, I cannot say enough good things about joining a big company that will invest in you with the, the, it's a type of investment you can't get anywhere with these, some of these big companies and their training programs. They may pay a little less, but frankly, what you put in the bank intrinsically is, you know, you can't, you can't put a value on it. Absolutely. I know that we wanted to talk a little bit about leadership. We were talking before the podcast. Tell me some of the earliest leadership lessons you learned, uh, you know, from being there at J&J, particularly from bosses and mentors. Yeah, I, I, a couple really good lessons. I mean, the one that always stuck with me and I try to teach in my company it's what you accomplish is the only thing that really counts. You know, don't, don't talk about how hard you work. You know, describe what you've done. You know, activities that create no outcome remain only activities. And that, <laughs> that, that lesson's important because even in, when I'm interviewing people and they tell me about activity, a bell goes off in my head because what I want to talk is about what happened with that activity. What is the results? That was probably one of the big lessons. And, and I guess- Was the, there someone in particular that you got that from? Or was that kind of more of their culture? That was more along the lines. I've picked that up along the way and placed it in my head. Uh, a lesson that I did get from actually Alex Gorski, who's now CEO at J&J. He and I started there at the same time. Uh, he said something to me, which I thought was important. He goes, when you're working, he goes, look at what your boss's boss pay attention to and try to get on those programs. And, and I did that. And that was very valuable because then, you know, it's not just the tactical things in front of you, but what is the organization trying to do? And if, and if you work on the things that the organization is going to do, you're going to have more visibility. You're going to be more valuable to the organization. You don't need to mention any names on this one, but was there any behavior that you, you know, noticed and said, boy, that's really good to know. Cause I'm never going to do that. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. I Tell was, us a little about those lessons. So, uh, again, without mentioning names, I was general manager of a, a pharmaceutical diagnostic company and, and, and 
growing up the way I did, being the type of person I am, um, to me, it's always important that you treat everybody with respect, even if you don't like them or, you know, it just, it, life is too short. And then there's no time for, uh, everybody's going through life. Everybody's got their, their bags of rocks they're carrying, adding to that bag is, is not something I'm interested in. So the, the lesson I had was from this person was then not to do it is keep that in mind. You're talking with people. Uh, these are, these are not company assets. They're human beings. And, uh, uh, that's something I'd always stuck. People treat treating that treating them less than that. I, I've seen them treated very poorly. Uh, opinions being made about people early, which always happened to me growing up. So I never appreciated. I, you, you never let that happen. Uh, treat everybody with respect, and if you do, something wonderful happens. They give you back so much. Uh, they they no longer feel like they work for the company. They feel like they belong there. And it's it, look for me coming into work with a bunch of people I actually like and want to be around. I, I you know I'm, that's that's important. I can give you everything I got. If I'm dreading coming to work because I'm going to meet a guy or a gal that's going to uh, belittle or berate me for any little mistake I make, you know, it becomes a little harder for me to stretch out of my box and give you everything I got. Yeah, great, great point, Ron. Tell us about that's the first time you started managing people. Where was that, and what you know? What do you recall from those days? I, I have to say because. Formal leadership to me is the weakest form of leadership. It's there because you got the title. But my first management experience was actually being an informal leader. And this goes back to my my district, j and J. I, I joined a district. I was the youngest one coming out of college. And the team wasn't doing all that great. But I realized informally how I could help the whole team and do it by not staying with the old this is how we used to do things, but really trying to push the ball forward in there. Um, that was, I look around for people with informal leadership. You, look, you got a title VP, you got a title, you know, uh, whatever your title is, a CFO, general manager. Okay. But then you look inside the team of who in the team doesn't have the title and can still influence in great capacity in a positive way. Uh, to me, the informal leaders of a company are the ones you really want to rally behind. If they can do it without the title, can you imagine when they had the title? When you, when you started then directly managing folks, did you have a diverse workforce? In other words, people that were older than you, you know, gender differences, racial differences, given that, you know, you were in J&J &J and it was a part of the country, obviously, where there was a lot of racial diversity. Yeah, I was always the youngest uh, district manager and, and, and even regional and so forth. I um, Diversity... I am diverse, so I I don't understand anything but diversity. And and coming to California, I have to say, probably one of the most diverse states. It's a it's a pond I like swimming in. I, I like the I like being challenged. I think you learn so much when you start listening to other cultures and how they do things. And as we expand as an organization, we're constantly dealing with China, Europe, Japan. So it's nice to have those understandings that everybody sees things a little bit differently and appreciate those differences. So uh, 12 years at J&J, &J, tell us a little bit about just a thumbnail sketch of your career from there uh, to your CEO position today. Sure. Uh, so I was ended up running the, for lack of a better term, analytic analyt department at J&J. &J. And from there, I went to a company called Elon up in San Francisco and South San Francisco. So that's your first, first posting out in California then? Yeah, that was my first right in California. And it was, it was, uh, <laughs> it's a different country. <laughs> yeah. And, and going in the East Coast. I've never been, you know, uh, west of West Baltimore. So, oh, wow. Yeah. So it, it was big a change. Big, it was a big change. Uh, absolutely embraced it, loved it. Uh, was a VP of sales and marketing. 
there. Uh, learned a lot there too because Elon was beyond their startup, but they were still struggling to make it uh, big with the products that they have. And I did learn to tolerate ambiguity there. I mean, that was a skill that Elon taught me. We had four presidents in five years, everyone with different ideas about the direction of the company. And the lesson there, if anybody cares about it, is learn to deal with it. Because if, if you want certainty in a company, you'll be forever disappointed. You got to tolerate the fact that there's ambiguity in any company, especially a growth company. So from there, uh, uh, what brought you into the corner office or what was your next step towards that? From there uh, at Prometheus, uh, which has since been sold to the Nestle Corporation, uh, I went in as the general manager, which was pretty much running the commercial arm of the organization, uh, reporting right into the CEO and being part of the executive team. Uh, terrific, uh, exciting company, uh, started off fairly small and ended up being to the point where actually some a big conglomerate actually bought us. And, and that was very exciting uh, to see. Uh, probably the lesson I learned there the most was to commit yourself because I had it had to work well. I, I had to explain to my wife that we're going to move again, <laughs> to, this time to San Diego, which isn't bad, and that I'm going with a company that's a lot smaller than what I left and is uh, it's got issues. So I had to make it work, and I did feel like, uh, like that helped. And the reason I like healthcare is because I do think committing yourself to something bigger than your company is important. And we had the number one Crohn's product and I was very committed to helping as many Crohn's patients as possible. And, and that's, that I think was the biggest lesson I learned at Elon. Doing well while doing good. And yeah. Yeah. Tremendous. Yeah. So, you know, you obviously stepping back a bit, you made that transition from the fortune, you know, 500 or fortune 100, I'm sure J and J is a part of to, to the middle market. It sounds like with Elon and, and have stayed there actually kind of come down a little bit. What, what were some of the biggest differences for you from working for those big corporate structures to, you know, coming into the middle market in those general management types of positions? Wow. Great question. Uh, the, the biggest difference to a couple, one is resources. I mean, you just, Smaller companies, you ju I, you can't send everybody to Wharton for a class yeah. to learn something. Unfortunately, you know? yeah. J and J yeah. could do that. Yeah, you know, I can't. You can't afford the higher level, um, shiny type of training and resources that that you get. But what you did learn is to be scrappy and piece together uh, people that know certain things, teaching other people in the company, and and that was a very important. There, that was that was probably the biggest thing I missed. But the one thing I did learn is. There are people with a lot of talent. You don't always have to go to a consultant. You may have somebody in your own corporation that can speak to the issue at a very visceral level, and you get a lot of learning from that. Uh, the, se the second thing I would say is that in a smaller company, you have, uh, you have a lot more birth to do things. Uh, and let, let me try to explain that. When you're in a bigger company, I won't say you're put in a box, but this, your job is very defined. Uh, the smaller the company gets, the more your job may be marketing and sales, but don't forget to take the trash out on your way out. Yeah, you, you have a very wide uh, amount of responsibilities. And the people I think that do best in transitioning from a big company to a small company are those that understand that that's an opportunity. For Willing them. to do it. Yeah, yeah. that's how yeah. I got recruited as a, as a GM of Prometheus was because my skills were far outside sales and marketing. I, I had to do fleet. I had to do all these other things you wouldn't think of that, that are commercially important to an organization. 
And there's more opportunity. We, we've had a couple of CEOs say that, you know, one of the reasons they got ahead is they're the ones who raised their hands when, you know, someone asked them to do something and no one else is willing to volunteer for it. Right? Absolutely. And, and, you know, as you said, whether it's taking out the trash or exploring a new project and, you know, even failing at it, right? Because, hey, it might be a little bit of a risk involved, but, you know, management tends to reward those that take those risks. Perfect. Tell us a little bit about how your leadership style has evolved over time, Ron. Well, this is great. Now that I'm the CEO of Exogen Diagnostic, it, I really do have the ball in my hand. And the one thing I, I remember before I took the position was this is an opportunity to build it the way I always thought it should be built. And, and I started with culture. I went and recruited the people from Prometheus that since uh, Nestle bought them that I knew were cultural people and experts at their position. And surrounded myself with an executive team that really, really understood that people matter. And that goes back to committing yourself to something more important. We're a lupus company, a lupus diagnostic company. And the one thing we did is let's talk to patients. Let's find out what they go through. Let's bring them in here. Let's really understand the devastation that this disorder has. Now let's rally behind it and fix it and do everything we can to get these people correctly diagnosed. That type of person that you bring in that's committed to something bigger and the overall mission of the company builds a culture, again, where people feel like, well, I don't work at Exogen. I, I belong there. I, I'm, I have a mission here that I have to accomplish. And I think that's the key to building a good culture. And the other thing I'll just add is to have a good sense of humor because not everything goes well. <laughs> you know, yep. you know, a good sense of humor never hurts as long as you make fun of yourself first. You'd be able to laugh at yourself. And yeah, if absolutely. If you can do that, and 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 it's it's nice when you're around people that can do that. We just completed a deep dive for a senior position in HR, actually, for a middle market company on the West Coast. And it's family-owned, third generation, which is rare, as you know. Wow, I think that is. Statistics are 33% to the second, 13 to the third, and 4% to the, to the fourth generation. So they're on their way. But, uh, you know, one of the things the owner just kept pounding into me, Brant, it's important that whoever you get has got a sense of humor. Yes, you yes. Know? And it's just important to be able to kind of, it's, sometimes it's the glue that kind of keeps the culture together, isn't it? It is. The thing is different now, which I've noticed, um, probably because of social media. Yeah. When you hire and bring people in, people are very sensitive to the criticisms that are done. And I keep telling them, no course of action is criticism criticism free. And you got to you got to have a team that can take those as well and laugh those off. Because sometimes your own confidence in yourself is the only thing that'll comfort you, saying I'm doing the right thing. There there are so many people now with social media that can can hurt try to hurt you in any way possible and people with good sense of humors can laugh that off and sit there and go <laughs> they have to i know what yeah. i'm doing i know what i'm doing right i'm not going to let somebody with a megaphone take me off my integrity take me off the course <laughs> of action of building an organization yeah what would you say is unusual or, or unique about the uh, exogen diagnostic diagnosis culture well when i got here there were uh no products and about what uh 10 people and uh basically a bunch of angry oh it's pre-revenue yeah oh yeah this is these are a lot of angry vcs and uh <laughs> yeah just very like upset because they put a lot of money into a company that that essentially has failed uh my lead scientist uh dr terry devure uh outstanding worked at prometheus and he he spotted a couple things that worked um, and we talked a lot about the culture we said okay now that we think we have a marker that's pretty spectacular and helping patients, what type of company, not what type of product, but what type of company do we want behind this? And uh, 
and that's where we start putting the blocks together. And you know, we want a company that doesn't look like we're just selling things. We're solving problems. We want a company that that partners with the payers and partners with pharmaceutical companies. And I'm very proud to say we've done that. We're uh, we're doing exceptionally well. We're growing 30% year over year for the past three years, and that's both revenue and demand. And 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 I have to say, in the rheumatology world, we've become uh, a very important staple to what they do every day. Congratulations. Thank so, you. yeah. So, lupus wasn't a focus when you first came in. Was that something that you and your scientists uh, figured out, or had that always been there as uh, part of the diagnostic no, uh, journey? When I first got here, it was a um, it was a breast cancer test that oh, failed. Wow. It didn't meet its endpoints, so the money that the VCs put in was gone, evaporated. They tried to restart. So it really was a total reposition. Oh, it was wasn't completely. Uh, there, there's literally no one here from those days anyway. I mean, it's just, it's all new. From there, it went to they tried to be a GI company, but again, my scientists would sit there and go, "But these products aren't any good." And the one thing we said, <laughs> "We're like, well, it's we're right not to say that." Yeah, <laughs> you know, it, it was very fun at my first board meeting, walking in and saying, "Everything you have is junk." That uh, <laughs> so when they say, "Who hired this guy?" Exactly, <laughs> I mean, you guys did, right? I, oh goodness, exactly. Look at each other. But they wow. were, well, they, that's great. But they were smart because we had smart people, and we looked in the toolbox, and we found good stuff really, really good stuff that needed to be worked. What do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in, Ron? I, I do something called the one word question. I learned it. I don't know where from. I, I, I like to dig into one thing on the resume and really, really go after it. And what I like to look for is how did you accomplish what you say you're going to, you said you accomplished. How did you do it? And one thing I know. When you say one word, what do you mean by that? In terms of they, they need a one word response, or it's a one word question. <laughs> it's it's a one word question, really. It's it's it's, and I'm going to stick with that one question, and 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 because when you're interviewing, a lot of times it's you're going through your bullet list, right? You're going. I got ten questions. I am listening to your answers, but I got ten questions. I got, <laughs> and, and what I like to do is I should know the answers. To, just take one and just explain it again. Explain it again. So how did you do this? How did you do this? And I and now I think about. It, I think the guy's name was Joe uh, Joe Adler who who wrote the book. This is I'm going back years ago, but it stuck with me. And uh, it's the take one question and then learn for it. And what I look for there is how did they accomplish what they said they accomplished? And if they can't explain it, you got a problem. You got somebody who doesn't know. They may have been successful in the resume, but they don't know why they were successful. So it's hard to repeat when you don't know what it took you to be successful. So you focus on an accomplishment question, right? It's always Correct. something with regards to something in the past. Yeah. Correct. Cool. cool. What, what, you know, how do you decide when it's time to micromanage or when to stay out of the out of sandbox, so to speak, with someone? That's a really good question. Um, I have you have standards and expectations for everybody who works for you, and when the standards aren't met, you do have to come in a little bit and say, look, we, we, we have to figure out what we have to do together um, to, to fix, to get to the standard of the position. When it's expectations, you let people bump their heads, you know, and, and, and it's painful sometimes when you know somebody's, you know, making, a, let's say, a marketing a mistake or something. You're like, okay, I, I can live with this mistake. You're going to see what happens and you let that go. So I have to say, as long as as long as what they're doing is not really going to be damaging, say, your whole organization, it's okay to let people fail. Failure, failure is your best teacher. Then you have to go back and say why. And uh, a thought comes to mind. We have a regional director that uh, hired 
people and then five months later either had to turn them over or uh, or they left and said and the challenge there was why what did you see that made you think that they were right and 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 really dig into that and it's painful for the person on the other side because they got to do a lot of self-awareness but at the end of it that regional and most people I do this with sit back and go I just uncovered that I got a blind spot I got a blind spot for athletes. I got a blind spot for people that work for big companies. I got a blind, but it uncovers it. God, everybody I hire happened to go to my same university. I got a blind spot. <laughs> you know, you you unveil those. It's so interesting you say that. My biggest struggle, particularly with CEOs over the age of fifty, most of our uh, search practices, you know, C-suite, right? So, so my clients are guys like you that are building out their executive team. And they always want to hire a mini me. Yep. <laughs> right. And I have to walk them back. And I said, listen, you know, I know this guy's a lot like you were 10 years ago, but the bottom line is he's going to have the same blind spots. He's going to give you the same answers. Yep. And six months from now, now you're going to come to you and go, you know, he's a great guy. Our wives play bridge together. We do our vacations, but he's making the same mistakes I am. And I'm like, yeah, duh. <laughs> <laughs> Sally over here, on the other hand, you know, her, her psychographic profile tells me how different she is than you. And, uh, you know, that's, that's so true. Gosh, uh, falling into those traps can be a real, a real, real disadvantage. Well, Ron, you've been very, very uh, generous with your time. We're so thankful for that. We have like one last question that, that all of our audience like to hear. And that's, or an answer to rather is, you know, what career and life advice would you give to someone who's, you know, got their eyes on their own corner, corner office? Don't surprise your boss. <laughs> <laughs> Keep so them informed. True. If it's, you know, bosses want to hear good news fast and bad news faster and come with a plan on how to fix it. I mean, you are you will get in the corner office if you are a problem solver of the things that are most troubling to an organization. You will get there. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. And I think, like you said earlier, focusing on results, not activities. Yes, absolutely. Ron, best of luck to you to continue to grow Exogen Diagnostics. And uh, I hope I get a chance to come down and meet you in San Diego sometime. I look forward to that, Brent. Thank you very much. <laughs> All the best. Appreciate it. All the best. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.